Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we are going to talk about living a fantastic life. Now, people are going to go, uh-huh, what, has she, what is she talking about this time? Now, seriously, that is the name of one of the books of the author that I've got on the show today, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life. And you know what? We were just talking about being happy to wake up and open your eyes and see the sunshine every morning. And you all know, you know that I say that frequently on the show. And my guest agrees with me about that theory, y'all. So I'm I'm just going to warn you, we're going to hear positivity on the show tonight. (laughs) So, So Dr. Laika, it's awesome to have you with me. How are you today? I am fantastic. Thank you for ha- for the privilege of being on your show. I love it. I love it. See, I I like I like positivity, and I figure there's there's enough negativity in the world, so I like to have positivity on the show, and helping people to find out how they can make their life more positive, and. If there are things that they need to work on in their life, how we can help them to find out how they can do that. And I think you can help me with that. What do you think? Well, I hope so. I think, you know, there's a lot to living a life with positiveness. You know, you can wake up every day and be miserable. But what does that get you? Does it really help? Well, you know, that's it. That's it. I mean, it. it, I, I haven't found... I, I tried that for a short time, and it just didn't help anything. It just, I, you know, I just didn't find that it helped anything. I really didn't. But let me let me tell y'all, Doctor Doctor Leica has a huge bio, which will be on the show page. Okay, but let me let me give you some of the details. He is acknowledged as a leading expert in living a fantastic life and turning points. He's a transformational, sought-after TEDx speaker, three-time best-selling author, winner of the coveted Philly Award for best-selling author, thought leader, life-changing coach, and mentor. He was misdiagnosed with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, in 2003, and after additional research, discovered he had chronic Lyme's disease. He's treated and practiced and after that, he treated and practiced for another 16 years as a cosmetic dermatologist. And he retired in 2019 to embark on a new career to help others over- overcome adversity the way he did. You know, it's, I, was, I was reading through your stuff, and it's like, you know, he had this long career as a dermatologist. And he started a whole other one after that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let me see. And you helped develop laser-assisted liposuction. Liposuction. I can't. I, I can't pronounce that. It says an advanced body sculpture technique. And it sounds like. I mean, you had an incredible career as a as a cosmetic dermatologist. So it, I mean, it's not like you were a slacker when you were a doctor. And then you're doing these things to help people to change and restructure their lives in other ways, even after you were a doctor. So this is interesting how you're helping people to transform their bodies and their lives as a doctor and now transform their lives in a different way after you were a doctor. That's interesting. I like that. You know, all I can say is it's been a wonderful journey, and I've been blessed with the opportunity to help so many people. I like that. Well, and you know, it's it's awesome to be able to take our experiences and help others. And and you know, it's it's like I I love doing my show, and I love being able to help other people with it. But I've I've grown so much through the show, you know, and I I just hope, and I really hope that the listeners believe me when I say this, I hope they've grown even a fraction as much through the show as I personally have. And you've got a podcast. What do you, what do you think? Do you feel the same way? You know, I'm so lucky to have so many wonderful guests. I can't help but grow because of them. They have mm-hmm. lived so many wonderful experiences, and they share those experiences on my my uh, podcast and my syndicated radio show. So it truly has been a, a wonderful journey to have them on, and an honor and a privilege to have them on. Exactly. Well, and 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 we get to nitpick and choose who we have. You know. <laughs> so, and and I I tell the listeners I said you know drop me notes and tell me. Tell me what y'all want to hear. I mean, I I pick what, you know, what interests me and what I'm excited about because, I mean, it's easier to to have a show when you're excited about the topics. But I also, a lot of times when, when people drop me notes and talk to me and this kind of thing and express certain things they're concerned about, that does have an impact on who I bring on the show because I know that people want to hear about certain things, you know. Um, and, of course, then people that reach out to me and say they'd like to be a guest, you know. But it's, it's I, I just think it's fascinating the, the knowledge that we gather and learn and how much we grow as the host, you know, and, and like I said, I just, I, I know people that listen every week, and I just, I hope that they've grown as much as I have. I really do. I think it's amazing. I just, I love it. I just love it. <laughs> I wish I'd, I wish I'd grasped that side of it years and years before I started the show. I probably wouldn't have done this a lot sooner. But, so, so what made you get into medicine? Why, why did you start that? You know, that's a, that is quite a journey. You know, I always wanted to do the best at, at what I could. And, and when I went through university, 
you know, I looked at all the things and I said, geez, I probably could help people the most as being a doctor. And it became something that I really, really uh, strove after. Now, medicine was extremely competitive to get into. So you oh, yeah. had to work very, very hard. You know, only one person who out of a thousand that applies to get into medicine actually makes it. So it truly is, is a real difficult path. Wow, okay. I, I knew there was a lot of competition. I didn't know it was that bad, though. Okay. All right. And, and you were in medicine for like 40 years, right? You know, I, I graduated from medicine in 1983, and I walked away in 2019. So it, it, it was close to 40 years. Okay, okay. So, so why cosmetic dermatology? You know, when I walked into when I walked into the first dermatologist's office that I was ever into, I said, "Jesus, this is one of the most amazing things. These doctors can make their the difference in people's lives." Now, when I went into dermatology from nineteen and studied at the University of Minnesota from nineteen eighty six to nineteen eighty nine, dermatology was changing, and we started getting the tools that would really help people transform their bodies and their lives. We started getting lasers, for example. We started getting a, a material called Botox that was helping people to get their wrinkles taken away. We started getting materials called filling substances. So with those coming on board, I just adapted to them and I started getting into them. We started doing liposuction totally under local anesthesia, which was brand new back then. Most people thought you had to put a person to sleep to do liposuction. Well, certain doctors proved that wasn't necessary, so it really became a whole different way of doing things. And so with each innovation, I wanted to learn more and more and more. And I was the leader of the pack in many of these things. I got into many of these things before anybody else was. I was a rapid adapter. Interesting. You know, I I didn't realize, you know, it's, it's interesting looking back that that's, that was the time period when those things started. But yeah, that's, that's true. Interesting. Okay. Um, you know, now I, I watched your, your TEDx talk and there was something, let me see if I can, if I can give you an intro to, to get you to say what I want you to say here. Um, you were saying something about the responsibility of a cosmetic doctor. And it's not just to change the appearance of the patient. There was something else that the doctor needs to do. Well, I, I said you really need to take into account what's right for them. I really need to take into account that they're, uh, you know, it's not only making people look beautiful. It, it really is not all about that. It, it's really about what's right for them and making sure that you're doing what's right for them. True. What about mentally? Well, you know, there are many people in this world that do not, that shouldn't get cosmetic surgery 
because they're not mentally uh, appropriate for them. And to just think that in so many, uh, and it's thought, but all a person has to do is go into a doctor's office and you'll transform their lives. That's not necessarily true. Uh, there are cases where you basically help people, but there are also places you can harm people by doing that. Exactly. Well, and, and the thing is they, they need to not only look beautiful, but they need to understand and feel beautiful once the changes are done. You know, they need to, to grasp what all of us are seeing that was done to them. And I am, am I explaining that right? Yeah, you know, there, there was a doctor who was one of the first plastic surgeons, and his name was Maxwell Martz. And Maxwell Martz realized there were some people that he did cosmetic surgery on, and they'd look in the mirror and they'd say, Doctor, you didn't do anything. And yet there was such undeniable proof that they looked so much better after their cosmetic surgery. So everybody has this facade, this image in their mind on what they should look like. And some people cannot see the changes even when they're there. So Maxwell Marx started a science called psychocybernetics, which was a whole new branch of psychology where he helped people to to realize that that it's not all about just looking better. It's about feeling better and knowing what you do. Right. And that's, what was that called? Psycho-cybernetics. I like it. I never heard of that before. But I, I, I've heard of the concept. I just never knew what it was called. See? See, we learn cool things when we ask questions. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, well that's I mean I've heard stories of people that have all of these procedures done and they're just they're never happy, you know. And and it's like they well and they take it too far. You know, well, they have and, and I've seen that sometimes in these people in the press, the person that looks like a cat woman and the person that looks like a Barbie doll. And and, right. and that is way too that is wrong. That is way going over to the extreme. Right. Well, and and is is that? So, I mean, you you can't say conclusively, but is is that sometimes the indication of the person that that just can't quote unquote see their real selves? I think many of them it becomes an obsession where they want more and more right. and more, and and that is not necessarily healthy either. Right. Interesting. But I mean any anything can become an obsession and you just have to take it too far, so interesting. I don't know. I think sometimes people too don't realize we only have one body, you know? So all right. So now you you were doing all this work and you were on the cutting edge and things were obviously going well, okay? And and I'm I'm guessing it was pretty lucrative because you know any anybody that I've talked to that was in this field it, it's good money. So um, but you know money money's not everything. Um, at least that's my theory. So 
why why did you leave that career and write how to live a fantastic life? You know, my life changed interestingly enough in two thousand and three when I was walking with my wife in Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Right. And my wife turned to me and she said, What's wrong with you, hon? And I was taken aback because once in my life I hadn't said anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't even thunk anything wrong. But but my wife persisted. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, dear. What's wrong with me? She said, listen to your foot. I said, really? What do you mean listen to my foot? She said, listen to it. Well, my right foot had suddenly and mysteriously developed a right foot problem. It uh, was flapping on the, on the pavement which each step I was taking. Now, your brain is designed to lift your foot up with each step so you don't trip and fall. Well, my well, yeah. foot wasn't doing that. So something had gone wrong. She said, did you have a stroke? I said, dear, if I have a stroke, I'd probably be lying on the pavement muttering something unintelligible. Right. So she, said, she said, when you get back, you better get this checked out. Now, when your wife tells you to get something checked out, what do you do? You get, you better get it checked out. You better if you know what's good for you. So I got yeah. it checked out. I started seeing uh, doctors, and you know, I saw some doctors, and then I saw some more, and they referred me to more doctors and more doctors and more doctors. There were hundreds of doctors that I'd seen by the end of the day. They did CAT scans. They did brain scans. They even did scan scans. And you know what they showed at the end of the day? No. They showed absolutely nothing. The doctors were flabbergasted. They didn't know what to say. They thought I had a brain tumor or a slip disc or something. But they couldn't find anything. I've, so, I've been in those situations. That is frustrating. So, so you know what doctors do when they can't find anything? Sometimes they send you home. <laughs> Sometimes they send you home. Sometimes they say you're crazy. And, but most of the time, any doctor that's worth his salt does more tests and more tests and more tests. Mm -hmm. And they're looking for an answer. And I think doctor, the doctors even invented tests that didn't even exist back then. So, so at the end of the day, they still couldn't find anything. So they sent me to a world-leading neurologist. Now, our neurologist is a brain guy. He's the guy that knows all the answers to complex neurological questions. So right. what he did was... I walked in and I said hi. He said hi back. You better be sitting down when when I tell you this. I said why? I've got a dropped right foot. He said no, you don't. You have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Get your affairs in order because in six months you're going to be dead. Mm. I was taken aback. I, I said. Is there a way to prove this diagnosis? He said, of course, on autopsy. Okay. Well, that that doctor had no bedside manner, as you can yeah. see. Had 
So I walked out, I slammed the door, and I was angry. I said, I'm not going to die to prove you wrong. Mm. But, but when you go through uh, something like this, you go through the phases of death and dying that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, wrote in her book on death and dying. You go through anger because you're angry at the world. Why? You've been told you're going to die. Yeah. You go through bargaining. Oh, God, please don't let this happen. I will do anything if you don't let this happen. You go through denial. There's nothing wrong. I can do anything. There's nothing wrong. But my right foot was still dropping. And then my right hand started not, it started not working right. It literally couldn't lift up the surgical instruments that I could before. But I was smart. I became a left-handed doctor. There and back then there weren't even left-handed tools. So I invented left-handed tools to make it happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're still going through all this. And a lot of times you get depressed. Now, when you were going through what you were going through, did you become depressed? Um, I didn't, but I, I had, I guess, the benefit of mine happened so fast. I mean, I, I had maybe three hours to absorb what was happening to me. Yeah, so you, you didn't go through all those stages, but many I, people... I was, I was more shell-shocked. Yeah. yeah, when many and people go through these, yeah. these difficult things, they go through depression. And right. literally, they, the days are black, the nights are black. And if you're right. clinically depressed, you know, life has no meaning. You can stay in bed all day and stare at the ceiling and say... Why should I do anything? I'm going to die anyhow. You know? And then that is the difficulty with depression. It's a very ugly, dark place. Uh, you know, I had seen people die of ALS. It's a terrible death. And I wasn't going to go down that path. You know, I was even going to kill myself before that happened. But I went to my wife and I said, Dear, what do I have? And she said, I don't have the faintest idea. But you're smart. You'll figure it out. I said, how can I? I've seen hundreds of doctors. Uh, they couldn't figure it out. She said, mm. perhaps you haven't seen the right doctor yet. Right. So what I did then is something brand new was invented in the early 2000s. It's called the Internet. You ever hear of that? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how that was only 20 years ago and how it's changed the world in that short period of time. But back then, you had to get on with dial-on connections because you couldn't get on. We didn't have Dr. Google. We didn't have computers like we had today. Your, your phone would go on a cradle and it would go, yeah, yeah. For like 20 minutes, and then finally you connect. And when you connected, you only could get on with a language like DOS because uh, computers had no memory back then. So you had to use these primitive languages to communicate. Now, I had friends that were nerds that could help me out, and they did. But back then, the internet is just like now. It's full of the best resources, but it's also full of garbage cans. And you can't tell the garbage cans from the great resources that are there. Yeah. 
But the good thing is my friends navigated it. And we found a doctor in Colorado Springs, Colorado, who had a story very similar to mine. His name was David Martz. And what was unique about him is he got worse much more rapidly. And so he was on his deathbed within weeks of his diagnosis. And he was so well known and so beloved that doctors from around the world were coming up to see him. And Dr. Martz uh, was lying on his deathbed when a doctor from Texas by the name of Dr. Harvey came up and he told him, David, I don't think you have ALS. David said, what do I have? The doctor from Texas said, I think you've been bitten by a tick and I think you have chronic Lyme's disease. And mm. I think if I start you on treatment, I can make you rapidly better. David said, what do I have to lose? I'm dying. Exactly. So Might the, try. he started him on treatment. And like Lazarus, he arose from the dead. Within two weeks, he was back to normal. It was amazing. And awesome. I knew I had to get in touch with David because of the amazing things that happened to him. So I phoned every hospital in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I got in touch with him at the... <clears throat> at the Methodist hospital. And we talked, and he talked for hours. He said, can you come down and see me? I said, when? He said, what about right now? He said, <laughs> David, it's Thanksgiving in Canada. My wife's invited 50 people over. She's going to be very mad at me. He said, you know, aren't there any planes in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> so that's when... I decided to come down. I went to my wife. I apologized, saying I wasn't going to be there for Thanksgiving. And she was mad. She said, you know, hon, you're always away. You're always helping people. I don't know why uh, you have to go away for Thanksgiving. I said, well, because of the fact that there's a doctor in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that claims he can help me. That's when she did a 180 return. Exactly. Said, I will pack the bags for you. I will even get you to the airport. Come on, you're wasting time. So I ended, up in, I ended up in Colorado Springs. I got on a flight from Edmonton to Denver. It was a beautiful flight. But then I got on a flight from Denver to Colorado Springs, which was a rinky-dink puddle jumper. Have you ever been on a rinky-dink puddle jumper? Oh, yeah, my first flight ever. <laughs> yep. And you know what I'm talking about. But for the audience, I'm going to describe it. These planes <laughs> are small. And because they're small, they get affected by weather a lot more than the big planes. <laughs> and, and so this plane would fly along. And then it would drop 100 feet without warning. Yes, yes, and then they it do. Would climb back up. And then it would drop 200 feet without warning. <laughs> And then it would yeah. climb back up, and then it would drop 300 feet without. It was like the drop of doom over and over and over again. Yes, yes. And I, was, and I don't like roller coasters, but I tell you what, those things are like no roller coaster you've ever been on. No, yes. and, and you know, this was a 15-minute flight, but it was the flight from hell. It, and yes. when I got up, I was green, and there was Dr. Martz on the tarmac to meet me. 
You see, back then they hadn't imposed all the restrictions that go on now. Uh, right. It was just the early 2000s and they hadn't put in all the high security. But it was, when I got off, there was Dark David on the tarmac to meet me. And he said, Dr. Leica, you don't look so good. And I said, I don't <laughs> feel so good. And he said, that's probably a metaphor for what you've been going through. And I said, you're probably right. And we talked for hours and he said some magic words. He said, Dr. Leica, I think history is repeating itself. I think I can make you better. And the beautiful thing is, he started me on treatment, and that's how I was able to continue as a leading cosmetic doctor until 2019 when I decided to walk away. But you know, when you go through something like this, you decide to change. You either change for the better or you change for the worse. And yeah. I've seen people change for the worse, and it doesn't help them at all. But if you yeah. change for the better, you can make a difference in society. And that's when I asked myself three questions. I said, did I live, did I love, and did I really matter? And I decided to make my life something different. And so I started to give back. And I started to sponsor an event called Women of Distinction for the YWCA in Edmonton. And that event honored women in society. As you probably realize, even today, women do not get the kudos and all the honor that they should. So it was something that I decided to make a difference, and I became the person that helped with that a lot. And there, a wonderful lady by the name of Harriet Pinka decided to apply for an award. The award was a turning point award, and the award was in a category that where a person has changed their life around. You see, Harriet was a world-leading model. She'd walked the cat ropes in New York and Milan and Paris, but after a short period of time, she got tired of the industry because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog breakfast in that industry, and she decided she wasn't going to uh, be in it anymore. So she decided to pursue her second love, which was accounting, and she went to the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, and there she was befriended by a person that turned out to be a psychopath. And that psychopath uh, ended up kidnapping her, stabbing her, and leaving her for dead. Mm. So it, it's, the story gets better from there, though. Harriet ended up in the hospital. She doesn't know how she got there. But when she got there, she met a little girl by the name of Amber. Now Harriet was moping and crying and being miserable about the things that had happened to her. And this little girl called Amanda decided to ask her, what's your story, Harriet? And Harriet told her, but Amanda immediately gave her hell. She said, Harriet, I'd been in something far worse. I was in a car accident where I lost both my parents and I've lost use of my legs. But she said, I'm going to do something out of my life. I'm going to make a difference. And she said, I challenge you to do the same thing. <laughs> so Harriet was challenged to do something. That's why she had applied for the Women of Distinction Award. And that's where she decided to make a difference. And she applied for the award, not to win the award, 
but to meet me and convince me to write a book. And that's where we wrote the book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life Together. And that's where we put it together. And it came out at the early part of 2020, where the world was changing. I mean, a pandemic had struck us. And, yeah, definitely. you know, my the book immediately became a bestseller. An international became a bestseller. And it... Uh, is an award-winning book as well. So I'm very pleased we were able to help a lot of people with that book. And we still continue to help people every day. Because in that book, Harriet and I write about the 13 golden pearls that are found in each and every one of us that can make a significant difference in people's lives. Now, do you know what causes a pearl to form? Um... It's the irritation of the sand being inside the oyster, isn't it? Absolutely. And you know, in the South Pacific, there actually are golden pearls that exist. Uh, they get a little grain of sand in them, and they produce golden pearls. And those golden pearls are exquisite. In fact, a single solitary golden pearl costs upwards of $10,000. Now, wow. the golden pearls that Harriet and I found in each and every one of us are even more valuable than that. And the beautiful thing is they are inside of you. All you have to do is look inside and, and, and find them, that they're there. Awesome. I like that. So, do you help us in the book? learn how to discover them within ourselves, I'm guessing. Well, you know, each book, each chapter in the book, I'm just going to pull it over here, each chapter in the book is based on a golden pearl. So okay. it starts with chapter one, which is love, and the last chapter, which is chapter 13, is empowerment. So it okay. takes you on a journey to find those golden pearls inside yourself. Now, okay. each chapter is, is written in a different form of way. It is written so that you can look at this. So the first chapter is love. And love is the most beautiful thing in the world. You know, It's one of those things that you get more of just by giving more of. And that's exactly. a beautiful thing about it. So it starts with a quotation, and I'm going to read that quotation to you so you can experience that. Love, I believe that dreaming is stronger than reality. Desire is more potent than apathy. Hope is more powerful than despair. Joy always triumphs over sorrow. That laughter is the ultimate cure for mankind's foibles. And I believe that love is stronger than hate, the greatest gift of all. Okay, so positivity is more powerful than negativity. It always is if we give it a chance. Right. Definitely. Definitely. I agree. 
you know, it's, it's a, I, I just I just finished writing a book with uh, with somebody, and we we searched and searched to have a quote to put at the beginning of every chapter, and it's amazing how powerful it is as you're going through and finding just the right quote to put at the beginning, you know. And and just and even we had we had some left over, and we had um, examples and case studies and stuff that we put at the end, and then some of the quotes that we had left over we put at the end of of each of the chapters too, because we had so many we just we, I said, we're not going to just throw them out, you know. <laughs> so, oh gracious! <clears throat> so tell me what. What do you think was your most important lesson that you learned from having an incorrect diagnosis? My most important lesson is that it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. That, you know, if I had just listened to the doctor, I would have probably be dead right now, just like David Martz was. But the point is, I didn't listen. I kept on looking for the right diagnosis and the right thing. You know, you were fortunate that you had a doctor that said, oh, well, there's a dissecting aneurysm, and we can operate on it. I've had, I've heard from many other patients that their doctor told them, yes, you have a dissecting aneurysm, but there's nothing we can do about it. And you're, you know, just... Go home and die, you know. Well, and you I, know, I wouldn't accept that diagnosis. I would look for another opinion and see if somebody would operate because you're going to die anyhow. You might as well die trying to fix the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I to this day think that. I mean, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but but John Ritter had the very same condition. And and he was misdiagnosed. And by the time they figured out what was really wrong with him, it was too late. Because I mean, you you know the 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 time span with this that you, that you have to find the problem and fix it. And for some reason, I I got more than that time. Thank goodness. Um, but due due to his his misdiagnosis and him dying from it, his widow actually started a foundation that has done a whole lot of things to um, increase the education, the research, and this kind of thing. And that has um, helped so that a lot of doctors and a lot of students are learning much, much more. And the way a lot of, of hospitals are handling um, the diagnosis and the testing and this sort of thing has changed dramatically since his death. And I, I really credit that in her efforts with the fact that more of us are surviving, more of us are living longer. And I, I really think on some level that is, and, and it's to her credit that I survived. That may or may not be, but I really think that that's that's part of the reason. So, um, you know, if if she hadn't been as proactive as she is, and hadn't worked as hard as she had to to push, 
um, the education factor and for changes and all that, it's very possible I wouldn't be here. Because, I mean, statistically, and, and the doctors to this day don't understand how I survived. Because I shouldn't be here, and I know that. So, you know, but thank goodness, thank goodness somebody finally found what the problem was. But, um... Not to get over dramatic, <laughs> but uh, no, and and you should be dramatic because truly that's a terrible diagnosis for anybody to have. And yeah. if if people, you know, if you're having chest pain, my goodness, don't just accept it. Go get yeah. it checked out. Yeah. Well, and and my chest pain lasted all of like a minute. That was it. There was no more chest pain after that. And well, and and I should not have waited the five weeks to go to the doctor, you know. And and I, anytime I tell the story, I tell people, I said, do not ever ever do that, because that literally should have, have that should have killed me. It should have. The waiting was crazy. If I'd had any idea what was going on, I never would have done that. Um, but knowing the hospital I went to and knowing how hard a time they had finding the problem and they actually missed it the first time on the CT um, if if one of the test results hadn't been I mean the, one of the tests they did a, a test result of 60 showed that I had heart failure my test result was 3600 obviously I was having heart failure um, if that test result hadn't been so bad I'm not sure they would have gone back and kept searching so hard and so so long to find the problem. I I'm not sure they would have found it earlier. I I'm really not. So it it was clear something was wrong with my heart, but you know, I'm not sure they would have found it. So I'm not sure how they missed tears from, you know, I mean <laughs> I mean my my aorta was shredded. I'm not sure how they missed it, but they did. But I'm here. Like I said, that's that's bottom line, that's the important part. So as as a doctor, okay, and being being a doctor and seeing a misdiagnosis after all those tests, because I mean you you had an insane number of tests done. And Having somebody, and I, I know what it's like to have a doctor look you in the eye and say, you're going to die, okay? that that I, it, It's hard to explain that feeling to somebody. Um, how, how, as a doctor, does that make you see the medical profession? Does it, does you it know, that for it, you? It, it doesn't, because I know that doctors are humans, and I know they make mistakes. Okay. And, I know that a doctor can only know what he knows. He cannot know what he does not know. And sure. back in the early 2000s, no one had heard of chronic Lyme's disease. And in fact, even now people argue that it doesn't exist. So, you know, things like that happen. But again, it's the responsibility of every patient to look for their proper answers and not accept things when they're there. Yeah, that's that's something that that I mean, I've I've said to every person I know, and can't say loud enough is is you've got to be an advocate for yourself. You know, 
I, I'm not seeing it, saying be a pain in the neck to the doctors, but I mean, I if, if I don't feel comfortable with something that's being done, or if if a doctor just will not listen, and I I mean, I've I've got enough stuff going on that I keep very very close eye on what's going on. I mean, I thank goodness years ago I used to work at a hospital and I took a, a terminology course so that I had, at least when I read reports I have I have some clue what what they're saying, you know, and then I make sure the doctors explain it to me in more detail. You know, but I mean I I stay as up to date as uh a patient without medical training can. You know, and I and I keep up with the details of where I'm at with everything and all that sort of thing. You know, so if if a doctor's just seriously will not listen to my input, I, I make I make sure I I mean I go to somebody else because I, I figure it's my body. I'm aware of what's going on, and I need a doctor that's actually gonna gonna pay attention. And it's it's <laughs> all of my doctors have this thing that that when when I go to a new doctor, they literally say I scare them, <laughs> you know. And and I I've gotten to the point I'm like. Okay, so you understand the situation. This is good. We can move forward. You know, so I figure if, if reading my medical history doesn't scare them, then they haven't fully grasped the situation. So, all right, all right. Um, I tell you what. Do you want to give the listeners uh, information on how they can find more about you? Yeah, I would love everybody to go to my website. DrAllenLika.com. That's D-R-A-L-L-E-N, Lika, L-Y-C-K-A.com. There's a lot of wonderful things for you there. If you'd like to learn more about my syndicated radio show, it's called How to Live a Fantastic Life. It's on AM, FM, 24-7, and it's also on my website, so you can find it there. So, And if you'd like to get a copy of my book, it's also on my website. Now, I also offer a free 15-minute consultation uh, for people. And if, if that's too much for you, if you think that's too big of a step, write Tammy, my girl, on the site a couple of questions, and I'd be glad to answer them on the air for you so that we can help you find a better life. So I'm here to help you to the best of my ability and to serve you better. Awesome. I like that, answering them on air. That's very good. All right. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And listeners, I'll be with you next time on Ready for Love Radio. 